Philippians, a wonderful book, four chapters. Would challenge you to read it every week. To read one chapter a day and two on Sunday, you could read it through twice a week. Such a blessed, blessed book. It's the way I memorized scripture early on. I didn't know uh, I was doing it. But just repetition. I didn't even try to memorize scripture. I just read it so often, familiarize myself with it. A lot of y'all did that, didn't you? Just read it and then uh, find out one day you're you're quoting it. So uh, familiarize yourself with the Word of God. Chapter 1. Recently I was talking to someone, a friend, and they were, one of their responsibilities at work was to uh, hire people. And they also had the authority to fire people. And so... They said, well, I had to let somebody go recently. And they were telling me the reason that uh, they just didn't show up to work one day. And so they shared with me the lame reason why, why they didn't show up. And uh, they said that they had given them warnings before about some other issues and said, I'm, I'm going to have to let them go. And I already told them, well, you know, it just sounds like you need to get another job. And that was kind of the, the warning before the storm. So the storm is going to hit early this week. But I was thinking about that this week as I um, dug into this text a little more. And I'm wondering if there's anybody in your life or thought about my own life that has fired me from having influence in their life. They just said, I'm letting you go. You're not going to speak into my life because you really don't live up to what you believe. You're not who you say you are. And I've watched some things. After all, we, we may not have the authority to, to fire other people, but we fire brands. You order something on Amazon, and they have these little... On the far right, you know, percentages that people, how effective they are. And if you're disappointed, you can tell people about it and you can say, I'm never going to order from them again. You go to a store or business and they don't fulfill as you think they ought to. You kind of fire them and you tell other people too. I won't ever go back there. And you just tell them. But the problem, the comparison falls apart there. Because when they fire us, the stakes are higher. Because we represent Jesus. They don't just fire us, they fire Jesus. And they fire our church. That's why I, I laugh about it some with you, but I'm, I'm serious too. That I'm real careful about uh, just in, in a general sense passing out things that, that reference our church. You know... Have bumper stickers, Sunday and pass up bumper stickers to all of our people. I don't know about that. Uh, I preached this morning about anger and people angry when you drive and get on five sixty five and people and you know come visit us at Friendship Baptist Church. I don't know if I want that. Now you know ninety nine percent is real good, but that one percent does paints and stains 
the others, the others, and they fire us. Stakes are higher. We fail to maintain the standard of what God requires. It hinders our influence. Uh, this big idea that I've kind of given for this passage, it's, it's right there in the passage, is that our daily lives should reflect Christ. But the question is, how, how do we do this? And he gives here three behaviors that are, are key to doing that, to impacting your culture. It's a culture that's anti-Christ. That's the way Philippians was. It was, uh, or Philippi, it was a, uh, a Roman colony. Uh, they were strangers and pilgrims there. And so they struggled sometimes. Paul was beaten there. He's in prison in Rome as he writes this. So he's suffering. Look at verse 27. Let's read some verses here. Only let your conversation, the way you live, be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. And behave yourself that is suitable to the gospel of Christ, that it represents Jesus and his message. That whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs. And here's the first behavior that represents Jesus well and makes an impact. That you stand fast. We talked about that. That you're fixed. That you're steady. You don't waffle. Stand fast. In one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. That's the second behavior. Laboring together. Not just laboring in the church, but striving together. And he says they're one spirit, one mind, striving together. Uh, the unity of God's people as we're striving together to get the gospel out. This is not a, a one-pony show. We all work together. Uh, you may lead somebody to the Lord, but there were many others before you that influenced them. And the people that you're influencing, you may not have the privilege to lead them. Uh, somebody else may lead them to Christ. Well, the judgment seat's going to sort all that out. And that's why it's probably not healthy for us to keep score on those things. Stand fast, labor together. The third behavior is where we're going to land tonight is to suffer well. He talks here, we opened this last week, to suffer well. He talks about suffering. And you're going to suffer anyway, but he says you need to suffer well. In verse 28, he talks about adversaries. Let's just read it here. Look at it. Nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. Verse 29, he uses the word suffer. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. And then in verse 30, he talks about conflict, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. So he says, suffer well. You're going to have adversaries. You're going to suffer. You're going to have conflicts. Now, under this idea of suffering well, he gives us four encouragements that are the four keys to our, our suffering well. Last week I gave you the first one. That is that God will give you peace in your suffering. The natural Response to persecution and trials is fear. When you're persecuted, you're made fun of. Notice in verse 28, And in nothing terrified by your adversaries. You don't, don't be fearful. Don't be terrified by people that oppose what you believe. That's a natural response. A supernatural response is peace. And don't do that. 
Daniel went to public school. I did. Tim did. And I'm not necessarily advocating that. I'm, I'm just saying that uh, I think sometimes one of the benefits of that, if you're grounded well, is you, you have to learn to stand alone. I remember in my my senior year, they had a, a, a homecoming dance, and they were trying to, uh, I told you a story last week, this is another story. And I had a government class, I really liked the teacher, I liked the class, I learned a lot in there. First semester we had economics, second we had government. And so uh, another lady that worked in the office, my senior year I had a class where I helped in the office, and she was trying to get me to go with this, this girl that uh, eventually she, she was a real popular girl. And she was a friend of mine. And she kept trying to hook us up. She said, well, you need to take her. Well, I, I wasn't going to go. I said, no, no, I'm not going to do that. She, and she, she was after me. Well, then she went. She found out my schedule. And she went to my teacher's. And she said, you need to get him to take her. So this one teacher was not necessarily an adversary. She wasn't after me. But it was difficult because she went to her and some other teachers. And this one teacher in government, she said, I went up there one day turning some work. And she said, hey, you going homecoming? I said, no, ma'am. She said, now you need to take. She mentioned her name. And I thought, somebody's been talking to her. I didn't even like this girl. We'd never been out or anything. This is this other lady's idea. And no, ma'am. Oh, come on. And she began to kind of gently put pressure on me. Then one day in class, she, uh, in front of the whole class, she mentioned it. In front of everybody. Now, you know, with young people, uh, peer pressure and one step higher than peer pressure is peer dependence. Peer pressure can be a good thing if it's in a healthy climate. But peer dependence is another thing. That's why kids uh, mess up is they're dependent on their peers. But, boy, peer dependence, and they're not just young people. Adults struggle with that. But it's a part of uh, a right that teenagers go through. And, boy, my, I know my, if you know me well, my face turns red. And it's just always been true. And so when she said that, I blushed. I thought, oh, man. So I had to work up some courage and nothing terrified by your teacher. That's what the Bible said. And after the class, I thought, this has got to stop. I don't want her embarrassing me anymore. So I worked up some, some courage. I didn't know the Bible verse. But I said, uh, Mrs. So-and-so, I said, uh, I appreciate you. Uh, caring about me and trying to get me to go to this, but but I, I'm not going to go. I don't believe God wants me to go. And then she said, oh. And then she didn't say anything. Nothing else. That took care of it. And one of the reasons I hesitated is I didn't want to come across as uh, a Pharisee or a do-gooder. But I knew that, you know, I, I, this has got to stop, you know. And the way you overcome that, this is not the message, but is you serve people, you help people, you love people. But sometimes even then it can be misread. So what happens when, when even though you have the supernatural response that God gives you a peace, God gives you peace in time of persecution 
or in time of suffering. Because the theme here is suffering, adversity, persecution. God gives you this peace. Isn't it a blessing to see people uh, when they're dying or, or they have some other need in their life? And they just have the peace of God. Well, here's another encouragement in the passage. Notice in verse 28, this uh, second part. He says, uh, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. Now that, that uh, when you read it, it, it sounds just a little clunky, not because the Bible's clunky, but we don't talk that way. I mean, now, Brother Tim talks about evident tokens and things like that. But we, we just don't, we don't use words like that. Now we use words. We talk about evidence, and it's evident, but we don't put some of these things together. So what does it mean? Well, let me give you the idea, and then we're going to go through and reinforce it here. God not only gives us peace in our suffering, but God gives us superior perspective. He gives us a perspective that lost people don't have in our suffering and in persecution and trials. Now, Whenever your perspective is limited, your frame of reference is incomplete, and your conclusions are going to be wrong. I want to say that again, because I don't want that just slip by. Whenever your perspective is limited, your frame of reference is wrong and incomplete, and your conclusions are not going to be correct. I, I remember having conversations with, with Paula early on in our marriage, and, and later when we got into the ministry, I said, we, we have to get all of the information. Get all of the information. Sometimes we'll get calls, oh, did you hear uh, so-and-so? This has happened, they're at the hospital. He said, well, I know what you do. You, you, you get going on the prayer chain. No, no, I don't do that. I validate it. I verify it. Because what, what if, usually the first wave is not... It's, you know, like the fog of war. And I want to validate it. And sometimes it's exactly the way I got it. But many times, and if it's just 50% of the time, you don't want to put the guy in the back of the ambulance when he walked in on his own accord. And it's not that bad. Perspective's everything. And you got people coming out of work, dropping off. I got to go to the hospital, you know. And they walk in. He's like, hey, how y'all doing? Well, I heard... Or etc. So you want you want to get the complete picture, so your conclusions are correct, and that's what the Bible gives us. Also, perspective is important because it affects our hope. When you don't have good perspective, you lose your hope. Hope is everything when you're suffering, and and all of us suffer. I'll look at that in a minute. All of us suffer, but when you lose hope and suffering, you don't have anything. Is there anything better? In life, is there anything better in eternity than this? So God says, I want you to have a proper perspective. Let, let me give you, I think, one of the best verses in the Bible on perspective. And uh, you can just look at it. First, or, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment. Let me just stop there. My perspective on my afflictions, he talks here about a perspective on the severity of the trial. Now, this verse is for everybody. Whatever your trial is, God says it's a light affliction. 
Now on earth it may be heavy affliction. But from God's perspective, not because he doesn't care, but eternity's perspective, you'll see this in a moment. It's a light affliction. Perspective changes it. Which is but for a moment. Now you may be going through this for years. Or somebody's persecuting you at school or at work or whatever. But from eternity's perspective, it's just a moment. It worketh for us. Then you have another perspective where you see more clearly that, man, all of this is not working for me. This is, everything's going wrong. God says, no, I'm for you. I've got this worked out. Remember in the book of Genesis where, where Jacob, you know, his sons, he lost, he thought he lost his son Joseph. And all these, all this was not working out. I think it's in chapter 46 of Genesis. And his boy said, hey, uh, we're going to go to Egypt and uh, we're going to, maybe Genesis 42. And they said, we're going to go to Egypt and uh, we're going to go find, things are going well there. We hear there's food. We're going to bring some back. We're starving, Dad. He said, well, I don't want you to take Benjamin. And then he kind of requotes what all happened. He said, all these things are against me. All these things are against me. You ever felt that way? Sure you have. That's Genesis 42, 36, I believe, somewhere around there. Romans eight twenty eight says all things work together. The earthly perspective is it's all going bad. God's perspective is no, all things work together. Your, your light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us. Now, earthly perspective is not only is this not going good, nothing good is coming out of this. Eternity's perspective is God says, no, you're going to get a great reward for this. It's not only working for you, but you're going to get an exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Now, if he just said you're going to get glory, that would be enough. But he says the glory is going to be in excess, and it's, it's going to be a weight of glory, which is one of the words for glory, it's going to be glory, 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 and it's going to be eternity, eternal glory. All this stuff for a moment. Look at verse 18. While, and here's the key, while we look not, while we look not at the things which are seen, but the things, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So here's what he says. He says, don't look at the temporal. Don't look at your temporal persecution. Don't look at your temporal pain. Don't look at your temporal uh, trial. Look at eternity. See it from eternity's perspective. Here's, here's the issue. You react from your perception. And if you get lost in the temporal, you, you lose hope. And here's what he's telling these people that were suffering. They were being persecuted. He says, all right, you, you need to adjust your perspective. You're looking at the wrong stuff. Now, I want you to notice the contrast in verse 28. Look at it, Philippians 1, 28. Look at this. Which is to them, you may want to underline that, to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. 
So he makes a contrast here to them and to you. Them are the people in Philippi that are persecuting them. To you as the church, to you the people who the Spirit of Christ is in, the Christians. So here's what he's saying. He said, I want you to stand fast, strive together for faith of the gospel. But as you do that, you're going through persecution. But when you go through it, I want you to suffer well. But it means different things to you, and it means different things to them. But don't, don't lose. Don't lose your peace. I'm going to give you peace in this. Don't be afraid of your adversaries. Don't be terrified. And don't lose your picture. I'm sorry. Don't, don't, don't lose your, your hope. Don't, don't lose your perspective. Because what God is saying, he said there, there's a big overview here. Now, to them, to lost people, he's saying there's judgment coming. We'll get into that in a moment. To Christians, he says, you have salvation. Lost people are going to be judged. Christians are saved. You're delivered. That's what the word saved means. You're not going to have judgment. That phrase, look at it in verse 28. To them, an evident token of perdition. What does that mean? The two words evident token simply mean this. It means proof. It's almost like at a trial in the courtroom, presenting evidence to prove something is true. That's what it means, an evident token. It is a public proof or demonstration that something is true. So here's what Paul is saying. The the fact that you're going through a trial or you're being persecuted is an evident token. Now here's what he says. He says, to them, but I don't think it's to the lost people that they're seeing as, oh, I'm going to be judged. I think he's saying, to, look at it here. And in nothing terrified by your adversaries, that is, you've got peace even though they're, they're pursuing you, which is to them an evident token of perdition. But to lost people, this is evidence that they're not saved. They're not your brothers and sisters. They're angry with you. And it's an evident token of perdition, which means destruction, eternal loss. It's hell. But to us, it's salvation. So when they persecute you, here's what it means. To them, it confirms to you that we're different. Christians have different natures. We don't want to persecute people. We love people. Lost people want to, want to make us pay when our values conflict. They want to smother us. You look at some of the political parties today and, and what they believe, and it just doesn't make any sense. And you say, how, how, can, how can people even believe that? Well, they believe that because it's an evident token of perdition. It's, it's, in, their, it's in their heart. And then uh, there's a cry for tolerance, but they don't tolerate truth. In fact, they say, uh, they speak, I've taught you this poor, they speak of my truth. Well, that's, there's no such thing. There's the truth. I mean, my brother here, he has truth, and Andy has truth, and I have truth. That's just my opinions. We have opinions. But there's the truth, then we can rally around that. Then we have you and I, then we have unity. You and I, unity. We have unity around the truth. But we're never going to have unity just with our opinions. Sometimes it looks like evil is winning. But you don't judge things by what you see. When you stand for the gospel and truth and you're persecuted, it's a sure sign 
that God is real and that lost people are simply behaving out of their nature. That's what it is. It's an evident token of perdition. It's evidence that they're lost and they're going to hell. And we don't delight in that. We all have compassion about it. But it's the truth. And then, I'll show you this in a moment. But to you, it's evidence that you are a Christian. That you have been saved. Now, it's impossible for a Christian to rejoice in persecution or in trials in the world not notice. They're going to pay attention. When you're able to, to plod on, when you're able to rejoice, when you're able to maintain a proper attitude, they pick that up. They watch you. I've taught you that. Now, look at this verse. I want to show you this. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 4. Watch this. So that we ourselves, he's writing Thessalonians, so that we ourselves glory in you and the churches of God. Now, what, what's he bragging on them for here? For your patience and faith and all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. You guys, you guys are sterling with this. You have endured in all of your, your tribulations, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God. Well, wait, 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 Paul, you're, you're talking to them. You're bragging on them because they've endured persecutions and tribulations. But that's a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God. Yes, because they're simply lost people that persecute. They're just doing that out of their old nature. And it's just evidence that they're, that they're lost and that God is going to judge them for this behavior which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which ye also suffer. Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. So God's not slow in punishing injustice. There's going to come a day when mercy is over. When the invitation to be saved is, is, is over. And we'll just deal with the white-hot justice of God. There was a day when the door to the ark was shut. And if you read in the book of Genesis, in book chapter 7, the Bible says that God shut the door. Noah didn't shut the door. God shut the door. Nobody else was getting in. Noah preached for over a hundred years for people to believe and to repent. Nobody did. Eight people were saved. He and Mrs. Noah and, and their children and they're those that their kids married. And that was it. Nobody else got saved. I want to ask you a question. Was he faithful? Yeah. Well, Brother Rick, I, uh, I'm just not seeing a lot of people saved. Well, maybe, maybe you're plowing in fields like Noah did. Noah was faithful. Somebody said one time, when the ark was lifted up by the waters... Noah didn't paint on the outside of the ark, smile, God loves you. I believe God loves you. But we have these little trite sayings sometimes. By the way, what does that mean? Does that help anybody? It doesn't help anybody. And on the outside of the ark, smile, God loves you. That wasn't there. This was when judgment reigned. Look at these verses. This is so appropriate for today. 2 Peter 3 and verse 3 Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, 
walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Where's Jesus? Y'all talk about he's coming again. Where is he? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Things just going on the way they were. Then move down to verse 8, 2 Peter 3, 8. But beloved, be not ignorant. Peter says, don't be ignorant of this one thing. And here he gives perspective. One day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack. That means tardy or late or slow. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but He's long-suffering. He's patient to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You know what the next verses deal with? Judgment. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved as the earth. What manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat? I mean, one day you'll wish, you'll wish that you had stood fast and that you'd labored together and you'd endured the suffering because these things are going to happen. So when I, when I know these things, that, that judgment is coming, and I have an eternal sp- perspective that it gives me hope, that all this stuff is going to be over in a while. All, all, of the, all of the trial, all of the suffering, all, all of lost people, not understanding, we want to win them, but we have different natures. Second Thessalonians one seven, and to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with with his mighty angels. And this is Jesus in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Notice that word, everlasting destruction. There are some people that don't believe that hell is forever. That's what the Bible teaches there in other places. It is everlasting destruction. You say, well, preacher, how, how can something burn and not be obliterated? How can a body burn and not be obliterated? Well, the bush that, that Noah saw in the desert, I'm sorry, Moses, Richard Mills messed me up years ago, that, that, that uh, Moses saw in the desert, that it burned, but it wasn't consumed. God can make a bush like that. There will be eternal death and hell, everlasting destruction, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you... Of salvation in that of God. Now, that's what it means for them. To me, it means that I'm a Christian. When I'm persecuted. Christians are persecuted. Are, are you being persecuted? If you're not, something's wrong. Hey, you don't need to go looking for it. If you're persecuted all the time, something's wrong with you. But if you're never persecuted, you're not sought. You're not light. Second uh, Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12. Yea, and all that will live godly... In Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. 
That's as much a promise as John 3.16. You're going to suffer persecution. It's going to come. It's going to happen. Paul gave his testimony in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 17. From henceforth, let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. He had been beaten. And the word marks has the idea of these scars, really indentions in his body. Been beaten so often. Today that happens in Iran. Christians are, are tortured. They're executed. And for us in America, the day may be coming, but right now that's not the case, even though you have people that, that shoot Christians that happen at Columbine. But sometimes it, it may be taunting. It may be rejection. And sometimes I hear people say, well, well, we just don't know anything about persecution. What well, depends upon your, your context? That's not comforting to a kid that's an 11th grader in high school and he's going through some stuff. And then you say, well, well, if you lived over here, well, you know, that's a tough thing for that kid. That doesn't help him. It's still persecution. Depends upon your context. I had a friend that uh, he got saved and, and his parents wanted to put him out of the house. No, he wasn't executed. Well, it could be worse. It could in America. Can, can anything be worse than that? That's what the psalmist said in Psalm 27.10. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. Why did he put that in there? Because sometimes it happens when you love Christ. You see, the world hates Christ. The world hates the Christ, the cross, and the Christ that hung on it. And they will tolerate religion, but they won't tolerate Jesus. I remember the city council here, um, and um, for, for a long time they allowed you to, to pray for football games here. And uh, they'd asked me to do that times years and years ago. And then they said, well, you can't do that anymore. Well, then they sent the memo out. And they'd asked me to pray before a couple of graduations and so forth. So the, the Board of Education said, well, you can't pray in Jesus' name. And I got the memo. Now, I could have prayed in Muhammad's name. His name wasn't on there. I could have prayed in any, any religious leader's name. The only name that was on there was Jesus. I couldn't pray in Jesus' name. My mom, I didn't tell her to do this, but she was in the front office. So she went to the people that had asked me. She says, do you want Rick to do this? And they says, yeah, we really want him to do it because we were friends. She said, well, I may as well tell you, if you ask him to do it, he's going to use Jesus' name. And he doesn't want to get you in trouble and he's not going to make a show. But if you ask him to do this, this is what's going to, I'm just telling you up front. The world hates Jesus. They don't hate religion. At your company, they may ask you to pray or, or, or sanctify something with kind of a general blessing. But if you like the song I played, not Jesus, keep me near the cross. They hate Christ. They hate authority. They hate the Bible. Your standards will define you. Everybody has standards. Everybody has standards. They will define you. What you will and what you won't do. Where you will go, where you won't go. They define you, for good or bad. The name of Jesus invites scorn. When you wear that name, people are going to react to it. 
And that's gonna, you're going to be persecuted. That's why I say if you're not being persecuted, something is wrong. John chapter 3, verse 19. This is a condemnation that light has come to the world. But men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth. Look at this. They hate the light. It's not that they just don't tolerate it or they, they disagree with the light. They hate the light. Neither cometh the light, lest his deeds, and here's the problem, lest his deeds be reproved, because they love their sin more than the truth. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. Let me give you a good quote, okay? Truth sounds like hate to those that hate the truth. Truth sounds like hate to those that hate the truth. They don't hate you. They hate the truth. They don't hate you. They hate Jesus. So, so don't take this personal when you're representing Jesus or you're just standing for the truth. You don't need to be obnoxious if you just stand for the truth. They're, they're going to bowl you over. Luke six twenty six. Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you. For so did their fathers to the false prophets. Your dead spoke well of evil people, of false teachers. And notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, woe unto you when uh, some men speak well of you. All men. I mean, if some people aren't speaking well of you, something's wrong. But when, when all people, when, when wicked people speak well of you, something's wrong. John 7, 7, Jesus said, The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth. Because I testify of it, that the works thereof are evil. Let these words, soak in these words. John fifteen nineteen through 21. If you were of the world, the world system, anti-God, the world would love his own. And they do. But because you are not, and it, it changes all the time, the world system. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, out of the world. Therefore, the world hateth you. Are you getting this? Remember the word Jesus said that I said unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. First John chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, They are of the world. Therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. And so they give this message that's of the world. We are of God. He that knoweth God hears us. Because they know this message is, is from the Spirit of God. He that is not of God heareth not us. There's a division, just like there is here in Philippians 1, to them and to us. There's a difference. Hereby know we the Spirit of truth and the Spirit of error. Now, the apostles, when they preached, they, they did not want their converts and the people in their churches to be surprised. So they didn't have a bait-and-switch message. You're familiar with that with the sales. They'll put something in the sales that kind of baits you into the store, and then you go and say, oh, we sold out of those. I don't even know if it's legal anymore. They only had like three of them, and they get 500 people in there, and they try to sell you something else. Bait-and-switch. And so most of these guys on television and some on radio, they, they don't tell the truth. They're false teachers. The apostles were very clear about this, that being a Christian, it has a lot of joy, but sometimes it's not easy.
Paul's message, Acts 14, 22, when they went to Antioch, they were confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith. And here's his message, that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. And that's going to be hard sometimes. Going to be some persecution. You're going to get sick sometimes. It's not going to be easy. To the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 3, 3 and 4, that no man should be moved by these afflictions. Don't you get nervous. Don't you leave the church. For yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto, that is, to afflictions. For verily, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass. And you know, you know this is true. Now, what's, just, what's happening there is just stuff that I warned you about. You read Hebrews 11, and it talks about all these people that God delivered. As far as I know, the, the only one in the first part is Cain, or Abel, excuse me, Abel. Cain killed Abel. And Abel offered a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice. And the Bible said, he being dead yet spoken. He was the first martyr. And um, it, ta- it honors him. And he, he, was, he laid his life on the line. He was executed for his faith. His brother was angry with him. He was wroth, Genesis 4 said. Full of wrath. And then it goes on. And it, talks, it talks about Noah and Abraham and, and different heroes. Rahab. And these great people, that they were in some adversity, but God delivered them. He delivered them from these things. And I'm so glad the Holy Spirit did this. But at the end of the chapter, here's what he says in Hebrews 11.36. After he talks about all these deliverances, these two words, and others. He says, and others. Well, who were these others? Who were these others? People that had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings. Yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were in bondage, captive. They were stoned. They were executed. They were sawn asunder. Most people believe that was uh, Isaiah or Hezekiah. They were literally put, what they did, they, they would hew out a, a tree and just leave the outside of the trunk and put them in there. And they would take a saw and they cut them in half. They were sawn asunder. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. James, John the Baptist. They wandered about, and even Paul. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins. They'd stolen their clothes. They were destitute. They didn't have money. This is not health, wealth, gospel. Afflicted. They were tormented. Notice what the Spirit of God says, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. This is profound. Don't you, you see, the whole Bible is important. Don't you get discouraged. You say, well, Brother Rick, I'm doing right. Well, so were they. Sometimes when you do right, it doesn't mean that, that you're going to get a million dollars. You may do right and just, and God will give you some cornbread and some beans. We came to this church, and, and we did right, and, and it was tough. It was tough sledding. You just do right. You, you leave all that stuff with God. You, you get a perspective. 
It's evidence. It's evidence that you're doing right. That's what he's saying. Leave the score with God. Give me about three minutes. I'm almost finished. Perspective. Perspective helps you to know the end so I can have joy. Matthew 5.10 Blessed are they which are persecuted, and here it is, for righteousness' sake. Not because you were stupid. Not because you were proud and you wanted people to know who you were. But you did this for, for Christ's sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you. Remember I talked about this in First Peter. They reviled Jesus. Well, now they're treating you like Jesus. They're insulting you. Persecuting you with their words. Talking about you. They're persecuting you. And watch this. And she'll say all manner of evil against you falsely. For my sake. Now if it's true, you don't, you don't have much rejoicing. There's no reward for that. And if it's not for Jesus' sake, if it's just some big idea you had to get credit, God knows your heart. But if it's for Jesus' sake, it's a blessing. So because of this, if it's for Christ's sake, rejoice. Be exceeding glad. Why? Great is your reward in heaven. This is a perspective. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. I'll give you another verse. I love this one. This encourages me. That one does too, but I like this one. I like that one too. I really like this one. I'm, I'm digging a hole and I'm digging it deeper. Sorry, Lord. Romans eight seventeen. And if children, that's us, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Everything that Christ has is given to me. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together with Christ. For I reckon, the word reckon is not a southern word, it's a judicial word. I'm counting on this by faith, that the suffering of this present time, whatever you're going through, death, sorrow, persecution, the sufferings, plural, of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. I told Tim this morning, he, he's got some, some really good friends that are really going through the fire right now. And just suffering. And, and I know some of them. And, uh, and I care about them. And you can't help them, can you, Tim? We can pray. And that, that's a huge amount. But we want, to, we want to fix it. I'm a fix-it guy. I want to fix it. And I want to do more. But we can't. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Look at one more line here, verse 28. Philippians 1, 28. Which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation, and don't miss this, and that of God. God is orchestrating all this. He not only gives you salvation, but He's watching all of this. He's keeping the score. He he, he knows what you're putting up with. He knows your pressures. He knows. Isaiah 12, 2, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah is my strength. My song and has become my salvation. I can trust. I can sing. And I, 
I can rest. I can rest. One of the things that will help you to suffer well, which, which helps people not fire you from your influence. They, they don't want a religion. I'll call it that. That is not strong enough to help you suffer well. But here's what's going to help you suffer well is when you have a, a superior perspective and God has given it to us. To them, they have judgment. But to us, we have deliverance and it's of God. And He hasn't just saved me in the past. He's saving me in the present. And He will save me in the future. Let's pray together, okay? Heavenly Father, I pray somehow that this would encourage somebody in my hearing